Okay. So if you have a Bible, which I hope you do, please open to Genesis chapter 30. And we are going to continue on our trek through the book of Genesis today. <clears throat> but before we start reading, um, at the base of the Statue of Liberty, there's a poem from a woman named Emma Lazarus. And part of it says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. So basically, basically it's a call to the world to send us uh, the lowest of the low in your society. The, the, and this nation would, would be built on them. You know, those that are unwanted, those are cons that were considered the least valuable in your society, those who had been most humbled in their communities, they will be the foundation of this country. And this same theme is actually repeated throughout Scripture, wherein God has chosen to use the lowest of the low, the tired, the poor, those considered to be least valued, uh, valuable, the, the wretched refuse of the world, if you will, to build his kingdom here on earth. God used highly flawed men, as we've seen in the book of Genesis, men like Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, and others like Jacob's sons, as we will read about, Moses, Aaron, <laughs> David, Solomon, and others. They all had a lot of problems. And in the New Testament, it's the same thing. You guys like Peter, and Paul, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all flawed individuals that God chose to use to get the most important message out that could ever be heard. Um, God didn't limit his servants to the most intelligent, uh, the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most well-spoken. Uh, he didn't limit it to the most charismatic, charismatic or the best looking. <laughs> no, he uses dumb, ugly, poor, weak, dull people who stumble over their words. You know, a lot like Mark Berkland <laughs> and me. <laughs> God doesn't even limit those who he uses to those who are the most righteous. Um, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And this is one of the, the glorious evidences that the scriptures are indeed true accounts. Because it, it, it exposes the flaws of those whom God has used to be the foundation of the church, warts and all. The Bible does not cast God's chosen in a light that only showed their goodness, but rather almost every person in Scripture, just about every person in Scripture, I think there's only two exceptions apart from Jesus, where they're given their share of bad press, you know, of, of things that they did. Um, you know, when we share accounts of our lives with people, we naturally tend to cast ourselves in a positive light to sell our story. Um, just something that's in our nature. That's what everyone does in this fallen world. Everyone is ashamed in some sense of their sinful nature in varying degrees. So we try to cover that shame a little bit with fig leaves, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Um, but God clearly does not do that in his word. He exposes the sinfulness of even his most prevalent servants. He purposely showed how everyone that he has called to use and build up his kingdom are among the huddled masses, the wretches who long to breathe free from the bondage of their sinfulness. 
And this, and this account in Genesis chapter 30 further illustrates this theme um, in some very interesting ways. In Genesis chapter 30, it's a, it's a long chapter, and, it, and there's two main sections to it. And I want to cover the whole chapter, because by seeing these two sections of Genesis 30 together, we can really see the depths of God's grace as we contrast the unfaithfulness of man with the faithful faithfulness of God and how he deserves all the glory. So I'm going to break this chapter into two main sections dealing with two different kinds of breeding races. <laughs> uh, the first section dealing with Rachel and Leah, their breeding race concerning children and Jacob's utter failure in that. And then the second section dealing with Jacob and Laban's breeding race concerning sheep and God's provision for Jacob. So if you remember from chapter 29 of Genesis, Jacob was in servitude to his uncle, uncle Laban for seven years, and he did this in order to marry his daughter, Rachel. However, Laban, if you remember, tricked Jacob, and Jacob unknowingly consummated the marriage with Rachel's sister, Leah. It must have been a dark night that night. <laughs> um, Laban gave the reason for this deception of Jacob as being that in their custom, the firstborn must be given in marriage first. And this is interesting because scripture says that our sin will find us out. Okay, And certainly Jacob's own sin had come back to haunt him. Remember, it was Jacob who deceived his father Isaac by pretending to be someone he wasn't when he pretended to be Esau to get the blessing. Similarly, Laban had his firstborn da daughter, Leah, pretend to be his secondborn daughter, Rachel, in order to be married to Jacob in place of her younger sister. It's amazing how these two separate deceptions resemble each other. And it came back to haunt Jacob in his own, in his own sin. Anyway, Jacob was angered because of this and made, then made a deal to commit to work for Laban for another seven years so that he could marry the woman who he really wanted, who was Rachel. And just stop and think about how that must have made Leah feel. Her own husband got tricked into marrying her when he really wanted her sister. Yes, Leah, Leah participated in it, but it's likely that Laban, her father, required her to, her to do this. Um, and, but to say that this was a mess of a situation is an understatement. But God would be abundantly gracious through it. And the end of chapter 29 tells us that Leah conceived and bore four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So we see, we know that the lineage of Christ would come through the tribe of Judah. So we see that the chosen lineage came from this unwanted woman, Leah. <laughs> However, Rachel, it was, she was found to be barren. And that emptiness and rejection that Leah felt at first because she was the unwanted wife, Rachel would now experience in her inability to conceive. So with that introduction, let's read Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 24. <clears throat> then Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, so she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. And then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of, you, of the womb? And she said, here is my maidservant Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her 
I too may obtain children. So she gave him her servant woman, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has rendered justice to me and has indeed listened to my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. And Rachel's servant woman, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. And then Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. So she took her servant woman, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's servant woman, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. And Leah's servant woman, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. And in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is a small matter for you to take my husband, and you would take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. And then Jacob came in from the field in the evening, and Leah went out to him and said, you must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. (laughs) It's kind of hard to read this. with (laughs) So he, he laid with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant woman to my husband. So she named him Ishakar. Then Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And Leah said, God has gifted me a good gift. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she named him Joseph, saying, May Yahweh give me another son. So we'll stop there and uh, chew on what we just heard. Ah. <laughs> uh, So here in chapter 30, after years had passed, Rachel cried out to her husband Jacob in desperation, give me children or I shall die. In that time and culture, a woman's worth was determined by her ability to bear children. A barren wife in that culture was the equivalent of a dead wife in the mindset of many. A barren wife was seen as an embarrassment to her husband and often interpreted as a punishment from God. Um, and that is why in verse 23, Rachel finally, when she finally bore a child, she said, God has taken away my reproach, meaning she thought she was being punished by God. But of course, being childless is not necessarily a punishment from God, though it can feel like it. No, it just means that God may have uh, different purposes in the lives of those women and their husbands. And just because a woman can't have children doesn't mean she is of no value to God's kingdom. And though Rachel's culture told her that her life was of no value because she was childless, the word of God says that our value is derived from the fact that we are made in the image of God and not from what we are able to do or what God has given us in this life. But there are many 
issues like this, wherein the norms and traditions and morals of society contradict Scripture and the principles that we derive from Scripture. So that is why we here so adamantly hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the infallible rule of faith. The rightly discerned word of God written by the prophets and the apostles and taught to us by pastors and evangelists protects us from the deceptions of the world such as this. It protects us from the systematic redefinition of what is right and what is wrong and what is valuable and what is invaluable. Those things that our fallen society have so aggressively been working at redefining, especially in our, in our time. But here in our text, we see how hard this was for Rachel, who did not yet have the scriptures to guide her in the truth as we have them, and how she was being deceived by the redefined morals of man, into thinking that her life was of no worth because she had no children at that point. So she then cried out to Jacob to give her children as if he had some control over this, and he responded by angrily by saying, am I in the place of God? And this, he was referring to the, ref, the sovereignty of God. Jacob knew that children are a gift from God according to his will. So he harshly rebuked her, which was not the best way to comfort his wife in that situation. But on top of that, on top of his angry response, Jacob would play the hypocrite. Upon her later request to have sex with her servant, Jacob agreed to take the place of God and try to produce a child through his own fleshly means. Just like, if you remember, Sarah and Abraham did a few generations before when Sarah told Abraham to go into Hagar, her servant, so that she could have a child that, of course, produced Ishmael. And Jacob should have had some awareness of how that situation turned out, which was not good. But Jacob and Rachel chose to take things into their own hands, despite the history. So Rachel told her husband to have sex with her servant Bilhah so Rachel could have a child through her. And this, again, was a common custom in that day, but certainly not a godly custom. Essentially, Bilhah became a secondary wife to Jacob, just as Leah's servant Zilpah would also become later on, as we read. And these two servants became merely breeding machines, not wives that were loved by a husband, totally corrupting the gift of marriage and how, what God had designed marriage to be. I mean, we, talk, we, talk, we talk about you know, this idea of polygamy, and we read about it a lot in the Old Testament, but it was never God's design for a man to have multiple wives, as we see in Scripture that always ends up being problematic. And that's why when we read God's description of marriage, it's always centered around a man, a single man and a single woman coming together as one, not as one joining with two or three or whatever. Um, marriage is always designed between one man and one woman. That is the ideal. And that's what scripture gives us. But this type of corruption and dysfunction always comes from us operating by the wisdom of man rather than by God's word. And that addresses the reason why this situation was part of the reason why this situation was such a mess. As I said, they did not have the word of God in the way that we do. Yes, God spoke directly to men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not all the time and not on every issue. 
God allowed Abraham and Jacob to go down their paths, which were clearly wrong. Um, to what degree Jacob knew it was wrong to have sex with these servants in order to have kids is not really known, but God allowed it to happen as, it, as the means by which God is teaching us what going against his revealed word brings about. And that's what the, the Old Testament is, is, is. It's a schoolmaster. It teaches us what man's rebellion has done with regards to God's law. And we need to acknowledge the, the reality that God is speaking to us through his written word. Right now, he is speaking to us. We have no excuse for our sin. We have the full revelation of God. And every time we open his word, this, this thing we call the Bible, and read it, we should do so with great reverence and great awe, for it is God teaching us. This is not just some ancient book with quaint stories. No, this is God texting us right now. And, he is, and that's what he's doing. <laughs> and he's telling us over and over and over again, repent of sin and believe in him. Anyway, Bilhah conceived and bore a son. This is Rachel's servant, Bilhah. And they named him Dan, which means he judged or judgment. And Rachel interpreted this situation as the judgment of God being in her favor. She believed that because of this child being given to her, that God approved of this means by which she acquired the son. But just because we have good fortune in our lives, that does not mean that God approves of our actions. We must not mistake God's grace to us for God's prescribed will for us. Sometimes God gives us what we desire, even if the methods we use to get those things are sinful. I may get to work on time, but it doesn't mean that God approves of me speeding in my car. <laughs> um, God has his purposes in which he is achieving despite our sinfulness, so he allows certain things to come our way. Anyway, Rachel's servant, Bilhah, would go on to bear another son, and, and they named him Naphtali, which means struggling with or wrestling with. And, and Rachel saw this child as evidence of her victory, uh, a vindication, if you will, of her victory over her sister, who she was struggling with. While in reality, Rachel was really struggling against God's sovereign decree. As Nate taught a few weeks ago, when we complain about our circumstances, we are expressing our hatred of God's decree. For some reason, God has decreed in my life that I would encounter many bad drivers on the road. <laughs> And I often sin by complaining about them loudly, as my wife can testify of. <laughs> I'm, I, am, I am expressing, in a small way, hatred of God's decree in those situations. Bad drivers are one thing. But what about someone who purposely sins against you with intent to hurt you? Am I in sin for complaining about that situation? The answer is yes. Uh, it, it's, it's right to hate sin, but complaining about why God allows sin to take place, especially in our own personal lives, is also hatred of God's decree. It's also hypocritical, because we all still sin every day in various ways. So it's a tough word, and I'm preaching to myself, but it's a true word. And I think it's a great reminder for us all, as we often find ourselves complaining and struggling in our situations and our circumstances. We need to rest in God's sovereign decree in those times.
when we find ourselves complaining about stuff. I need to remember that we, what we are really complaining about is God's decree. But God accomplishes his graceful purposes even, even through very difficult situations and even through very difficult and sinful people that we encounter. Um, it was God's decree that Rachel, at that point, would not have children in her life up until that time. Just as it is God's decree that we find ourselves in the situations that we are currently in. Whether it be a, a health issue or a job issue, or a family issue, or a financial issue, or whatever it might be, it all belongs to God, and He is working it for the good of those of His people. Even though we may never know in this life what that good may be. So we need to just be thankful that we are, in fact, God's people. And we must remember God's sovereignty over everything. However, you know, we can say that, but the skeptic will respond and saying, well, if God is sovereign over everything, then whatever happens must be his approved will, right? Therefore, God must approve of sin because sin happens. God must have approved of Jacob having kids with those servants because that happened. Well, that's what's called a category error. Again, we must recognize and distinguish the categorical difference between God's prescriptive will, what he tells us to do, and his permissive will what he allows us to do, meaning allows, to, allows things to happen. That which he commands us to do and that which he allows to take place. In his permissive will, God allows us to disobey him and sin against him by rejecting his prescriptive will. But God decreed that he will, he will accomplish all of his purpose even through our disobedience. And he is glorified in that. Again, the cross of Christ is the ultimate example of that truth wherein God's plan and decree was accomplished through man's willful disobedience. But as his elect people, us, who have been born again, obedience to the God that we claim to love should be our most heartfelt desire. In fact, that desire is the very evidence that we are saved. The person who has no desire to obey God, but is antinomian, the one who dismisses God's moral law, that person is likely not born again, at least not as of yet. Anyway, in verses 9 through 13 of Genesis 30, when Leah realized that she was no longer conceiving children, she chose to do the same thing that Rachel did and came to the same faulty conclusion. As she gave over her servant Zilpah to Jacob to be his wife, and Zilpah provided two more sons for Leah, uh, Gad and Asher. This, of course, led to more jealousy in Rachel, which led to the infamous Mandrake incident. <laughs> Rachel saw that Reuben, Leah's son, had harvested these things called mandrakes and had given them to her mother, uh, his mother Leah. So Rachel asked Leah to give her some of these, this fruit, but Leah refused. So Rachel then told Leah, that Jacob would lay with her that night if she gave her those mandrakes. Now, first thing, you're probably thinking, what the heck is a mandrake? Why would someone want these things so badly? Well, the Greeks call these mandrake fruits love apples because it was culturally believed that these fruits helped women with fertility. So Rachel pimped out her husband 
to her rival sister for some love apples, hoping that she could become more fertile. Again, this is beyond dysfunctional. Rachel and Leah were both looking to worldly means by which to achieve what they thought God could not or would not do for them. And instead of supporting each other in their respective times of need as sisters, they continued to be in competition with one another. To somehow hold a higher status than the other with Jacob. And again, this goes back to this problem with having multiple wives. They're going to be in competition with each other. And though they were in grievous sin, Rachel and Leah, so was Jacob and Laban for igniting and fanning this flame with their total disregard for the women's feelings. And then Jacob comes home from work that day, and Leah goes out to him and meets him and tells him, you're sleeping with me tonight. Apparently Jacob was scheduled to be with Rachel that night. Um, but this change occurred because Leah, quote, hired him with her son's mandrakes. And Jacob's response was like, duh, okay. <laughs> Jacob's own wife purchased sex from her husband, from his other wife, her sister. And he just went along with it. He became a male prostitute. So yeah, this was an early version of the Jerry Springer show. And, and it's easy for us on this side of God's grace, as we read this and are appalled, to see how depraved these people's behavior was. It's easy for us to say that I would never have done such things. But we can only say that because of God's grace in our lives. But in our fallen state, we are all capable of such sinfulness or worse. So we can't be prideful and look down at them. We can only thank God for his gracious influence in our lives in the sense that we would see how depraved this behavior was. And without the word of God, a whole different moral standard was being allowed to rule these women and men because of their sin nature. Anyway, like Rachel, Leah believed that God rewarded her for giving Jacob her servant earlier on. And in verse 17, it says, And God listened to Leah, and, con and she conceived and bore a Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant woman to my husband. And then Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son sixth son to Jacob. And Leah said, God has gifted me a good gift. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter named and named her Dinah. So not only did Leah think that God was reward, rewarding her conduct in giving Jacob her servant, but she later conceived another son herself and thought that surely because of this son, her husband would now honor her. She was still suffering from Laban's deception of Jacob in that she was the unwanted wife. She was struggling with that. But God also graciously gave her a daughter who was named Dinah, which means justified or vindicated. So we continue to see this competition, this unhealthy competition between sisters despite God's abundant grace toward them. And then in verse 22, it says, then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. So this is, a, this is an interesting term. God remembered Rachel. 
Does this mean that God had forgotten about Rachel and then said, oops, oh yeah, I was supposed to give Rachel a child? <laughs> well, clearly that's not what it means. Um, several times in the Bible, the phrase God remembered is used. After the rains of the great flood had stopped, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. We read that in Genesis 8, verse 1. And when the Hebrew slaves cried out to the Lord in Egypt, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. It's not like he forgot it. And then Psalm 98.3 says, says of God, he has remembered his love and his faithfulness toward Israel. When we see the word remembered, we usually associate it with calling to mind something that we have forgotten. But this is not how this term is being used in these verses that are talking about God. We know that God does not remember things in the sense that he has forgotten something. Unlike our own limited brains, the mind of God is infinite and all-knowing. Isaiah 40, verse 13 and 14 said, Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh, or, or has his counselor has informed him? With whom did he take counsel, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and made him know the way of understanding? These are all, of course, rhetorical questions that tell us that no one and nothing informs God, but he knows all things. He does not forget, nor does he need to be reminded. In Psalm 147.5, it says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His discernment is infinite. A forgetful mind cannot have infinite discernment. In 1 John 3.20, it says, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So scripture tells us God is perfect and he's not subject to man's sin and shortcomings such as forgetfulness. So in each passage that says that God remembered, we see that the phrase is followed by some sort of action or work on behalf of God's people. When God remembered Noah and his family floating in the ark, he caused the wind to blow, which began to dry up the water that covered the earth. In Exodus 2, God remembered his people who were enslaved to the, to the Egyptians. And in the very next chapter, he sets in motion a plan to free the Israelites. The term God remembered is poetic language of God's covenant with his people, showing his fulfillment of his promise. It's a literary device, as we've talked about before, called an anthropomorphism, wherein human traits are poetically attributed to God to describe what he is doing. When God remembers sin, he then punishes it, which is why David in Psalm 25, 7, asked God to not remember his sins. And when God remembers his people, he blesses them. Passages in which God remembers are always followed by proofs that God never forgets, wherein he acts upon his covenantal promises in his perfect timing. And that's key, because we always want God to act now. But he acts according to his perfect timing. Just as Rachel was desperate for God to act in her timing, he acted in his timing. And what is amazing to think about when we think about this is that when God acted on behalf of his covenantal promises with his people in Scripture, he was also acting on our behalf because we are his people. We were all on the boat with Noah when God remembered Noah in the ark because we are all descendants of Noah's family. 
We were all set free from bondage in Egypt when God remembered Israel because we have been grafted into Israel, as Romans tells us. And of course, God remembering Rachel and granting her a child was an act that we all benefit from and that God would use her son Joseph to establish the nation of Israel in Egypt, saving them from a great famine. But also, as we will see in the coming chapters, Joseph's life will serve as a tremendous prophetic picture of Christ that, again, makes the scriptures, proves the scriptures are divinely inspired. Um, anyway, what we see here is that despite all the sin and all the poor choices, to put it mildly, made by Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, God graciously acted upon his covenant and used these obviously very flawed vessels to accomplish his purpose. He used them warts and all. And this should be of a great encouragement to us in that God can and does use us as well, even though we may see ourselves because we are, we are unworthy, but we may think, what have I got to do for God's kingdom? I have nothing to offer. But God would disagree with you. He can use you any way he sees fit, and he will. We just need to be faithful. So with that, let's go on into the next section, chapter 30, verses 25 through 43, and take a look at the second breeding race. It says, now it happened when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own land. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go for you yourself know my service, which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, if I have now found favor in your sight, stay with me. I have interpreted an omen that Yahweh has blessed me on your account. And he continued to say, name me your wages and I will give it. But he said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, but it has spread out to a multitude and Yahweh has blessed you at every step of mine. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through the entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. And Laban said, Behold, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them to the care of his sons. That's Laban talking there, talking about Laban. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob was pasturing the rest of Laban's flocks. And then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. 
And he set the rods, which he had peeled, in front of the flocks in the trough, that is, in the watering channels where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs, and he made the flocks face toward the striped, and all the black in the flock of Laban, he, and he set his own herds apart, and did not set them with Laban's flock. Now it would be, it would be that whenever a, the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the sight of the flock in the trough, so that it might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man spread out ex exceedingly and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Okay. Another weird story. But, well, I mean, I'm going to not get ahead of myself. It's a pretty amazing story once we start to open it up. Uh, again, Jacob struggled, struggled with Laban for 14 years, working seven years to marry Rachel, and then he was deceived by Laban and consummated the marriage with Leah. And Laban conned him into working another seven years for Rachel. But despite this circumstance, God began to multiply the descendants of Jacob. In addition, the Lord prospered Jacob with his shepherding, and that, of course, prospered Laban. And after Jacob had fulfilled his additional seven-year term, he requested that Laban allow him to leave and go start his own life with his family. And Laban said that he learned through an omen, or some translations say through divination, that Laban was being blessed by Yahweh because of Jacob's presence. So what is this all about? Well, an omen or, a div or divination is essentially witchcraft or sorcery. It's a, it's a form of idolatry. And it's not something that a worshiper of Yahweh partakes in. God clearly forbids this. It's a process by which a person allegedly learns the future or unknown things through supernatural means, such as communication with demonic spirits. We have similar things today with so-called psychics and mediums. And Laban may have been in some kind of communication with demonic spirits or... He may have simply deduced through common sense that he was being blessed in, uh, because of Jacob and then called it divination to make it sound more convincing to Jacob that, so he wouldn't go against the spiritual realm. Laban was playing the superstition card. Speculation, but it, that could be the case. In any case, Laban knew that he had a lot to lose financially if Jacob left, which is why he made this request. I'm thinking if I was Jacob, and, and after what Laban pulled, I'd tell him, adios, muchacho, no soup for you. But Jacob saw this as an opportunity to prosper his family rather than a chance to get back at Laban. Or maybe it was both. Laban said, name your wages and stay around. But Jacob refused to take any kind of payment from Laban. Instead, Laban or Jacob offered a counter deal. Laban was to give Jacob initial capital to start up his own wealth. He asked Laban to give him some of his sheep, the future offspring of sheep that were speckled, spotted, and striped. And the speckled, spotted, and striped were fewer in number among Laban's flock and also the least valuable of the flock. So it was a humble, reasonable request. Most people 
in that culture wanted the spotless white sheep. Those were the most valued ones, the money sheep. There was some value to the spotted and speckled ones, but the pure white ones were the ones that were most popular. So Jacob told Laban to give him the sheep that he didn't want anyway. And whatever they breed, Jacob would keep. So Jacob would continue to keep Laban's flock while having a small flock of his own off to the side. So even though Laban agreed to Jacob's terms to do this, he still tried to cheat Jacob. He told his own sons, go into the flock and quickly get all the striped, speckled, and spotted, and black lambs out of there. Far away, and take them far away, three days away, before Jacob could get to the flock. Making it unlikely that the remaining pure white sheep were going to have spotted and speckled and striped offspring. Laban thought he could simply cheat Jacob and just multiply his solid-colored sheep and guarantee that Jacob wouldn't prosper and guarantee that Jake, uh, Jacob would remain in Laban's service. Of course, once Jacob got to the flock, he would know that this took place because Jacob knew what, there were spotted and speckled sheep in the flock. But Jacob didn't protest it. He continued on. Jacob knew something. So he wasn't concerned about Laban's cheating. Um, so what did Jacob know? Did he know some kind of yet undiscovered breeding technique that involved mating in front of striped rods of bark, which somehow not only caused the sheep to mate, but it also caused the sheep to produce striped, speckled, and spotted offspring? That's what verses 37 through 39 describe. Now, because of this account, atheists and Bible skeptics will often mock the Bible and those who believe the Bible, saying, well, this is not scientific. This is not a, a, a natural form of breeding. And in no way does this method produce mixed traits in offspring, just having them stand in front of striped bark. This is just a myth. But the problem is, with that criticism, is that the Bible never presents this process that Jacob performed as a natural or scientifically verifiable means of producing mixed traits in the offspring of sheep. No, the Bible presents this account as a supernatural work of God. As in the very next chapter, the Bible tells us Jacob received a word from the Lord. Before this happened, he had received a word from the Lord in a dream that God would do this for him. As in the next chapter, Jacob would explain to Rachel and Leah what happened with the sheep. In, verses, in chapter 31, verses 6 through 13, it says, You also know, this is Jacob talking, that I served your father with all my power, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to harm me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock bore speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has delivered your father's livestock and given them to me. Now it happened at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped and speckled and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am, he said, lift up your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. So Jacob knew ahead of time 
that God was going to give him speckled and spotted and striped and mottled, which means um, had splashes of different colors, uh, sheep, despite Laban's corrupt actions, despite Laban trying to cheat him. He was given a vision that he would have a flock of sheep wherein all that were mating were the ones that belonged to, to Jacob, spotted and mottled and, and striped. Um, therefore, Jacob knew this was going to be a divine act of God. But it seems that Jacob wanted Laban to think that he accomplished this through some form of divination rather than through revelation of Yahweh, which may have been why he went through this labor of peeling stripes in the bark and placing it in the feeding troughs um, for the sheep to see. We have no record of God commanding Jacob to do that. It seems that this was Jacob's idea. And yes, this is speculation, but this may have been Jacob's way of getting revenge on Laban is because maybe Laban would observe Jacob doing this and then spin his wheels for years to come trying to reproduce this method. Again, speculation, but it does make sense in light of the, the scripture. Regardless, we know by scripture that this was an act of God, that God was being abundantly gracious to Jacob. And a very symbolic act, I might add, as God took a small number of the most unvalued, unwanted sheep and reproduced a prosperous flock for Jacob's family, which by natural means would have been impossible. And if we think back, we, we step aside from that, we think back to the beginnings of the church. God took a small number of the most unvalued, unwanted men and women and reproduced a worldwide church to prosper his kingdom which through natural means was impossible. He took simple fishermen, a hated tax collector, shepherds and political zealots, a former Pharisee who was considered a traitor, and others who were among the lowest class of society in the first century, and produced a thriving and faithful church that would begin to spread the gospel across the entire planet. Warts and all. God has faithfully built up his church for 2,000 years with blemished, speckled, spotted, and striped sheep. And in so doing, God gets all the glory. Not us. Not man. The church could never have gotten off the ground by itself, just like Jacob could have never produced a flock of his own by himself from Laban's all-white sheep. This, of course, is more evidence for the testimony of Scripture. That the very existence of the church and its spread in the midst of great persecution in the first few centuries was truly a divine act of God. Would never have happened if it wasn't empowered by the Holy Spirit. Anyway, after 20 years, Jacob would then return to his homeland with many sons and daughters and great wealth, all because of God's amazing grace toward him and provision. And in this, we see more symbolism. Jacob was essentially in exile in Paddan Aram because of the threat of his brother Esau. Remember, Esau wanted to kill him, so he went to this place. Um, and it, and it, he was there, he, had, he was enslaved, basically, in serving Laban, which is prophetically illustrative of the exile of Jacob's children, the Israelites, when they had to go into Egypt. And Jacob had nothing when he went to Laban, and God prospered him and brought him back into his land of promise, but only for a time, 
And if you remember, he and his family would go into Egypt because of famine. And while in Egypt, being exiled from the promised land, they multiplied abundantly through great suffering, hardship, and slavery, just like Jacob did while he was serving Laban. Then, by God's grace, the Israelites were delivered from Egypt through what God would do to Egypt with the ten plagues as recorded in Exodus. The Israelites left Egypt with great wealth, and God would eventually bring them back into the promised land. But the exile of Jacob in, in Paddan Aram and the exile of Israel in Egypt and them prospering in the midst of their great trials and sufferings also points us to a fuller understanding of God's work through Jesus Christ. It points us to the gospel. Where was Jesus before coming to earth? He was in glory, in heaven, essentially the promised land. He came down, emptying himself, and became the suffering servant. And through his suffering, he multiplied his spiritual descendants through faith, his spiritual sons and daughters, the people of God. It was through his suffering and exile on earth that all things were then given back to him. As Hebrews 2, 5, and 10, 5 through 10 says, Jesus exiled himself from glory so all things would be again put under his subjection. Crowned with glory and honor. In fact, turn to Hebrews 2. I want to read this passage. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> I lied. I am going to be over 50 minutes. <laughs> Hebrews 2, 5 through 10 says, For he did not subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing, nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus. Because of the suffering of the, of the death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. God accomplished this through, in his perfect timing, in very difficult situations and circumstances with very difficult people. Through his suffering, he multiplied his spiritual offspring and prospered his chosen people in Christ, our great shepherd. Jacob, therefore, being also a shepherd, serves as a type or a precursor of Christ and that while in exile, God prospered him in and through his suffering. Now, some may criticize me in making this connection because the New Testament doesn't specifically say that Jacob was a type of Christ. But Jesus, when we deal with types, Jesus said that the entire Bible points to him. Hebrews 10, 5-7 says this, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, 
Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Later, he's, Jesus said that all, all, the, prof, all the prophets um, and, the, and the Torah spoke of him. Everything in the Bible points us to Christ, and God encourages us to search those things out. Proverbs 25.2 says it is for the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Prior to Christ's coming, most of that which was written of him was concealed. And God is glorified in him being revealed in the text now that he has come. So as long as we don't contradict the clear and plain revelation of Christ in Scripture, God is glorified in us seeing Christ on every page of sacred scriptures. And that's what we're doing when we read the story of Jacob. We are seeing a picture of the kingdom of God and what Christ did. And this is a, a foreshadowing of it through Jacob. Anyway, we, we too are experiencing in our lives the, a similar kind of exile that Jacob experienced. In that this dark world that we are in is not our home. But through difficult circumstances, among difficult people, we are being spiritually prospered in the Lord. Wherein, is, in his perfect timing, we will be brought in back into the promised land, having our faith perfected in him. And that's what's happening right now in our lives. We are being sanctified. We are having our faith being perfected in him through all these difficult situations that we go through. And Christ is our perfect example of that. But in the meantime, while we are in this world, we are the speckled, spotted, and striped sheep that God is using to achieve his perfect plan. So that one day we will experience perfection when we are in his glory. So let's end here and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that it is clearly divinely inspired, Lord. As though we, when we first look at it, it can be difficult to understand and, 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 and difficult to uh, grasp what exactly you are saying. But when we step back and we, we, we think about the full revelation that you have given us in Christ Jesus, Lord. It is abundantly amazing to see you on every single page of Scripture. By God, to see that, that, that picture of what you have done for us, Lord God, and your grace in our lives right now as your people, Lord, that like Jacob, you are using to further your kingdom. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, and we pray you would be magnified and glorified in our hearts. Continue to change us, Lord, from within to have less of a grip on the things of this world and a firmer grip upon the things of you, Lord, um, that our lives would be, that our greatest desire, Lord God, would to be walking in obedience to you, Father, uh, and less in obedience to the desires of our flesh. Father, we thank you and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.